0: A five-day march in Palm Beach County is bringing awareness to the mistreatment of farm workers. Welcome to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Wilkin Brutus. More than 100 people are taking part in a 50-mile march from Pahokee to Palm Beach. We examine why organizers are pressuring retail giants to join a human rights program. Next, the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank is still creating ripple effects throughout the banking system. We explore what impact the historic failure has had in South Florida. Finally, a man in Broward County who served more than 30 years of a 400-year prison sentence is freed after being exonerated for robbery. A Broward state attorney provides insight into the case. All of that today on the South Florida Roundup. I'm Wilkin Brutus, welcome to a special pledge edition of the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. You can make your donation to support programs like this by calling 866-247-9576 or on WLRN.org. From the agricultural community of Pahokee to the, we- to the wealthy Palm Beach, human rights advocates are walking nearly 50 miles to bring awareness to unfair labor. Here's a clip from the march.
1: Are we ready to march?
0: Farm workers and supporters from across the state this week embarked on a five-day march to bring attention to the mistreatment of workers in the field and to push for labor reforms. They are demanding retail giants such as Kroger, Publix, and Wendy's to join the Fair Food Program. It's a human rights initiative that began in 2010. More than 100 people are taking part in a march organized by the Coalition of Immokalee Workers. Joining us to discuss the five-day march and its causes is Eileen Kelly. She's a reporter for uh, WGCU, Southwest Florida's NPR member station. Thanks for joining us, Eileen.
2: Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for uh, your interest in this story.
0: Absolutely. Uh, let's get into the scene a little bit. Pahokee is in the Western part of Palm beach County near Belglade. Why was this the starting point of the March and why is it ending in Palm beach? Uh,
2: it was the starting point because, um, just a few years ago, well, there's this old inn, just like think, imagine like a two, three story inn, very old, um, kind of iron, intricate iron work around it. And, um, Outside the parking lot is this fence, and then you see this barbed wire, and it seems very strange. Um, to when I first pulled up there, that was when I first was tr- before the farm workers even started gathering. And I learned that that was the place where people were, were where workers were being basically held captive. Um, they had come over on a H2 on, on a special visa, an H2A visa, allowing them to come and into the agricultural community and pick food and then move on to another one and another one throughout the throughout the country. But when they got here, their passports were stolen and they were held um, at gunpoint in the fields. Um, you know, passports were stolen so that they couldn't escape and then they wouldn't be able to get back home, that kind of thing have, or have issues getting anywhere. Um, and and the, you know, the Coalition for Moccoley workers kind of honed in on this saying, you know this is one of the this growing organization this um was not part of uh, the coalition of the immokale workers fair food program and if it was then they would be able, they this never would have happened right right um
0: and, and just to clarify for the all audience uh, Imakali Imakali is an agricultural community one and a half hour west of pahoki um and yes it was essentially known for its bad farming reputation um, um
2: Yes, it, it, actually, the federal government has called it modern-day slavery. It has been for years, decades, actually. Edward Armara did a piece in the '60s called "Harvest of Shame," and it, it focused on Immokalee. Then, decades later, there was another big expose called "Decade of Shame," and it really wasn't until it, we're talking in the 2000s when people really started to take notice. And in 1993, the Coalition of Immokalee Workers formed, and it was these were the you know the people who that pick our food and they were trying to draw attention to the fact that they were making um, basically a penny per pound um, for each tomato that they picked. And you know they were doing hunger strikes and all that. And I was a, I had started my career over there as a newspaper reporter and I had been covering immigration issues, but in the town of Bonita Springs, which is north of there. And it was similar things like awful housing, awful pay. And I, so I remember the creation of this group. And then now when I came back over, uh, in late September to start at WGCU, I've I've been reading about, you know, what the coalition has done. And it's just it's astounding their their growth. And, I mean, they um, were they were recognized by the Harvard Business Review. And
0: important. before we stay on that historical context part of it, uh, l- l- let's stick to the, the recent protests. Uh, supporters are yep. essentially urging companies to essentially sign a labor rights agreement with a fair food program. How does the FFP initiative help farm workers what what's what what protections okay. are workers seeking
2: yeah okay so, so the ffp is part of the coalition of workers it's an offshoot and so what it essentially does is it's it's a it's a contract that that's like the farm workers will go to Publix or wendy's it, the first one was taco bell and so they would approach them and say listen you purchase so many tomatoes from florida we want we want to know who you're purchasing them from and we want to go and make a deal between the growers and you that, that you will allow a third party to come in and monitor the the work conditions. Um, they also want to be allowed to go there, to go to the the actual farms, pass out literature, show videos. Um, they demand water stations, they demand breaks, they demand shade, all of these things that were never required before. Um, and. So it's kind of, you know, this oversight committee, there's a 24 hour hotline to call um, this third party will go in and t- interview at least 50 percent of the workforce um, right. anonymously to try and get an idea of, you know, is are people are women still being raped? Are, you know, are, are people being fed? Are they being held at gunpoint? Because with, prior to this, workers weren't they didn't tend to speak up because they, they didn't want to get deported.
0: Hmm. And so these are the specific type of protections that they're seeking. Uh yes. where are the participants of the march at this point? Are are they close uh, to the finish uh, line?
2: Uh they're getting there in about 2 hours. They will be at um a publics in West Palm Beach. They were in Losahachi yesterday and they had stopped at two different Wendys. Wendys is one of the holdouts, the only holdouts of the fast food giants and um Today, they are going to a public supermarket on Southern Avenue um, and they'll be there at 3.30 for about a half hour. And then they're going to march over um, the Royal Palm Bridge at about 5.30. And then tomorrow is kind of the big finale. And that starts at 10.30 in the morning at the foot of that bridge where uh, Lois Frankel is going to be speaking. Carrie mm-hmm. uh, Kennedy, a human rights lawyer, will be there. Um, a big rapper from Mexico is going to be there, and they're expecting about 500 people. Then in mass, these 500 current former farm workers, um, family members, allies, religious leaders, they are then going to march through Palm Beach. So
0: quite a few um, people there. And, yeah. and just to clarify, we have from your reporting, McDonald's, Burger King, Walmart, Trader Joe's were some of the major corporations that joined the program in uh, Wendy's. Uh, yes seem to be to hold out so uh
2: Wendy's yeah Wendy's Publix yeah. and um Kroger and I, I did hear from Publix oh, today and they, I, I think they, we're,
0: we're running out of time I'm sorry oh, Aline okay. <laughs> uh, Kelly is a reporter for WGCU Southwest Florida's NPR member station Aline, thank you so much for your reporting
2: again thank you for your interest
0: absolutely still to come after spending nearly 35 years in prison under a wrongful conviction a Florida man walks free you're listening to a special pledge edition of the South Florida Roundup on WLRN I'm Wilkin Brutus. Welcome to a special pledge edition of the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. You can make your donation to continue to support programs like this by calling 866-247-9576 or on WLRN.org. 57-year-old Sidney Holmes was exonerated from prison on Monday after spending nearly 35 years there. Under a wrongful conviction in connection to a 1988 armed robbery in Broward County, Holmes was serving a 400-year prison sentence. Yes, you heard that correctly, 400 years. He was 23 when he was arrested. In 2019, Holmes reached out to the Innocence Project of Florida, a nonprofit organization that helps innocent prisoners get out of the system. The organization took on this case and through their review found that there was n- enough evidence to prove his innocence. After two and a half year investigation with the Broward State Attorney's Office, Circuit Judge Edward Edward Merrigan ordered the authorization to let Holmes out of prison. Joining us to discuss this case is Howard, or Broward State Attorney uh, Harold Prower. Harold, how are you?
3: Fine. How are you doing, Wilkins?
0: All is well. Thank you. Now, Harold, um, you're the Broward State Attorney's Office was involved in the investigation into Holmes's case. What was Holmes's, what was Holmes accused of and how were lawyers able to prove his innocence?
3: Well, Holmes was charged with armed robbery in 1988. Um, It was alleged on June 19th of 1988 that two people outside of a convenience store, which was a one-stop store in Fort Lauderdale, committed an armed robbery. Uh, Mr. Holmes alleged involvement with that was uh, that of a getaway driver. Um, it was never alleged that he was one of the um, assailants that had the armed um, the weapon or tried to commit the armed robbery. And so and so he was arrested sometime in October of 1988 after that uh, alleged armed robbery.
0: And so he was arrested. But what actually led to his conviction in the first place?
3: Well, he became a suspect because of a precarious eyewitness identification. Um, that was the principal evidence that was used against him at trial um, and also him owning a commonly owned and popular vehicle of the 1980s, which was a brown Oldsmobile.
0: And so people essentially like pointed at him out in the lineup and said, you are the the suspect, essentially.
3: That is correct. It was all based on um, identification. And also another issue with it was that it was based on a civilian investigation. It was launched by the brother of actually one of the victims of the alleged armed robbery. And so this caused Holmes to become one of the only suspects because um, we never or the circuit was never really able to find the other two participants in the alleged robbery. And so based on similarities between his extremely common Oldsmobile and the car used by the robbers, um, it pretty much overlooked the differences between the two cars. And um, it was likely his incarceration and him being picked for the alleged crime was likely due to the misidentification of the Oldsmobile involved in the actual robbery.
0: Wow. Now, is that? I mean, I recall seeing that type of method in movies. <laughs> Is that method still used today where you can just sort of point out uh, a potential suspect on a lineup?
3: No, and 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 that's a great question. I, I think primarily that was the reason and one of our justifications as an office in our CRU unit um, as to why we felt um, that exoneration was warranted in this situation. Uh, many of the practices used by law enforcement at that time in the 1980s um, Are pretty much outdated uh, practices that aren't used uh, uh, really anymore in criminal investigations. And we felt based on that information, based on that ID, uh, we wouldn't have uh, presented charges based on uh, those practices that were utilized in the 1980s.
0: Right. Now, um, your office was involved in this case for two and a half years. Um, In total, at least for the family, it took 35 years, decades of challenges by his family. For folks who aren't aware of how the justice system works, how can it take that long to prove someone's innocence when the evidence is essentially available?
3: Well, it it could be a plethora of many things. Um, And, you know, I can't speak for what happened during the the, the time when that case went to trial. It could be for many reasons. Um, It could be uh, due to um, the, the effectiveness of counsel um also it could be due to the willingness of law enforcement or prosecution to hear out uh, mr holmes uh, defenses or, or or some of the things that he wanted to present in his defense it, it, a plethora of many things that you know i, I really don't know and i can't speculate um, but what I can say and what the people can take solace in knowing that this man is no longer going to be in prison for a crime that he didn't commit. And thank God that we have a CRU unit, a conviction review unit uh, that took the time um, to go through his case and to do the right thing or at least begin the process of writing a wrong.
0: Right, right. Stay with me. I'm Wilkin Brutus. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. We're speaking with Broward State Attorney Harold Pryor about why a man walked free after spending nearly 35 years in prison. 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576. You can also tweet us at WLRN. Uh, Harold, for context, the United States is just over 245 years old. What's the difference between sending someone to prison for life Versus putting an actual number like four hundred years beyond a sentence is what what what's the logic behind that? well
3: <laughs> it, it you know it's mind blowing it 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 shocks the conscience when it first came across my desk and I saw 400 years, I was shocked right um just amazed at how could someone be sentenced for 400 years uh, let alone for this particular crime and the fact that he was a, a getaway driver um and actually the, the fact that the other two involved suspects in this particular crime or alleged crime, we were never able to locate them. Um, But one thing I can kind of point you to is really to October 1st, 1995. um, For crimes committed on or after that date, um, people who have been incarcerated, inmates, they're required to serve 85% of their sentence, the sentence that was imposed. And so um, normally, if you, were to sentence someone for life, or you were well, not life, but let's say if you were sending someone for 30 years imprisonment, uh, they would have to serve 85% of that um, term before they're released. Before that, um, if you sentenced someone to 30 years, or even if you sentence someone to life, they were eligible for parole, and they could have been out of prison in a matter of 10, 15, maybe 20 to 25 years. And so what I've been led to believe in my understanding from people who've been practicing much longer than me, right, um, that was their justification back then as to why they would impose such harsh um, or or elongated sentences for someone um, who may have been sentenced after a jury trial. for 400 years so the the motivation as to why they did 400 years was because to ensure that this man that Mr. Holmes would not see the light of day outside of a Florida state prison and so that was the logic if it is logical Mm -hmm. (laughs) that was the logic of why that sentence was imposed back then um but I I mean it should be noted that I think the initial offer was 800 years in prison 800 years yeah and the judge sentenced Mr. Holmes for 400 years um so that shows you um, just how shocking um, and how, um, how you know, I, you know, my heart goes out to Mr. Holmes Man. that he had to go through that ordeal. I mean, I could only imagine sitting there and a 400 year sentence. So, being so, imposed upon so, you for something so, you didn't
0: do. So the 800 years, so it gave him lenience by giving them half, which was 400. Uh, Harold, uh, let's, right. let's talk about the bigger picture here. Uh, a 2022 okay. report from the National Registry of Exonerations went through 3,200 exonerations in the last 30 years, and it showed widespread disparities in the criminal legal system that disproportionately affect black people who represent 13% of the U.S. population but made up 53% of exonerations 53 what does this hard data say about the criminal legal system
3: well as uh you know I'm, I'm a hip-hop fan and as jay-z once said men lie women lie numbers don't um we have to look at the numbers and 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 i'll tell you this much uh you can't be the chief prosecuting officer of any jurisdiction you can't be a chief of police you can't be a sheriff of any jurisdiction if you don't fundamentally understand and believe That we have a criminal justice system that has been traditionally stacked against people of color and poor folk and so it's important for us to have people in office that understand that have decision makers um and stakeholders that make these important decisions at the helm that understand the gross inequities of of the system and so look i'll tell you this I, i i can't speak for what happened in 1989 i can't speak for anything that's happened before 2020, all I can do is speak about now. And my goal is to ensure that we have a criminal justice system that's fair and equitable for all people. And uh, this is a start. Look, we're not perfect. Um, The criminal justice system is not perfect. Broward State Attorney's Office isn't perfect. But I think people can take solace in knowing that you have someone at the helm that understands that these numbers that you pointed out Um, that understands the gross inequities in the system and that really wants to fix that and make it more equitable for all people
0: right and let's stick on the topic of equity um as recently as three years ago the university of florida ended force free prison labor around their agricultural research sites across the state amid public pressure from students and advocates of criminal justice reform reform have always questioned long prison sentences and the existence of uh, private prisons And WLRN did a report on the influence of private prisons, um, that can have on elected officials as the Broward state attorney. Have you had to address any of these particular concerns?
3: No, um, you know, honestly, you know, I'm not in the department of corrections realm. Um, but I, I I will tell you this, you know, I, I do understand it goes back to my earlier point. Um, we have a system, um, that's in place, a criminal justice system that play that's in place. And we're all inextricably intertwined, right? Um, In the sense that what I do can affect what happens in the prison system. And so my goal is to be fair and equitable through every stage of the prosecutorial process, understanding that anything that I do in my role plays a role in what happens in the criminal justice system. And so uh, the more that I can do in my realm to find solutions to keep people out of prison by way of creating diversion programs, Um, by way of having mental health diversion programs, by having drug court, having drug diversion programs where we give people second chances to keep them out of the system. We make our community safer, so we won't need to put anyone in prison because if you're a first-time offender and you feel that you have a lack of economic opportunity where you can join the State Attorney's Office's Economic Empowerment Today Diversion Program where we help you get a job skill, Hmm. we help you find a job, you become a productive citizen in society and the recidivism rate goes down therefore we won't need to put someone in prison therefore there's no need for more prison beds or more prisons and so i think what i do has a direct effect with all of that so i can't talk about department of corrections i don't know about any of that to be quite frank all i can tell you is that i'm working every day to create ways to keep people out of the system by enhancing public safety we right. are Nature, by nature safer as a community when we right. address root causes of issues and give people second chances.
0: Harold Pryor is the Broward State Attorney. Harold, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it.
3: Thank you, Wilkin. Have a good one.
0: You too. Still to come, we examine the ripple effects surrounding the recent failure of Silicon Valley Bank. You're listening to a special pledge edition of the South Florida Roundup on WLRN 800-743-WLRN 800-743-9576. I'm Wilkin Brutus. Welcome to a special pledge edition of the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. You can make your donation support. You can make your donation by supporting programs like this by calling 866-247-9576 or on WLRN.org. The collapse of Silicon Valley Bank last week created ripple effects throughout the American banking and financial sector. It's the largest bank failure in more than a decade and the second largest bank failure in U.S. history. Two other institutions, Silvergate Bank and Signature Bank, also failed, and within a matter of days, the Federal Reserve, the Department of the Treasury, and the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, or FDIC, announced that it was shoring up the banking system. Silicon Valley Bank was a mid-sized regional bank that helped the tech industry grow. So what sort of impact could it have in Miami for the tech and non-tech businesses? Joining us to navigate the chaos is David Lyons, business reporter for the South Florida Sun Sentinel, and Drew Limsky, editor-in-chief of the South Florida Business and Wealth. David and Drew, thanks for joining us. Thank Thank you for having
1: me. Yeah, pleasure to be here. <laughs>
0: <laughs> David, let's let's start with your reporting. Um, this is absolutely wild. Uh, many people remember what happened during the 2008 financial crisis when high-risk subprime mortgage loans crippled the financial market. How did the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank happen?
1: Well, this is uh, not a 2008 episode. It's, it's not about uh, banks' uh floating real estate loans to people who never should have uh, received them. Um, and the contagion factor has, uh, even though uh, the financial markets are, are definitely rattled by this, um, you know, not only uh, Silicon Valley went down, but also a bank in New York State called Signature Bank, which uh, focused, uh, it's a commercial bank that also served the crypto industry um and then there's another San Francisco bank uh, called uh, First Republic that's on shaky ground but it just received a major infusion of capital from 11 uh, major banks uh, from around the country to shore up its situation but uh, you know the bottom line is that uh, uh, Sil- <coughs> Silicon Valley Bank which as we mentioned um uh, serves uh, the uh, technology industry um had a mismatch of uh, d- deposits versus assets uh, that was essentially caused by what many commentators and observers believe is a uh, mismanagement of its so-called uh, interest rate uh, uh portfolio. It had a lot of bonds uh, that were bought at, uh, uh, at low at low interest rates. Uh, and then as the Federal Reserve moved to uh, attack uh, uh, inflation, interest rates went up and bonds and interest rates uh, move inversely against each other so as the interest rates went up the uh, bond prices went down and uh, sbb was suddenly sitting there with uh, a portfolio that showed nearly a two billion dollar loss hmm. and so when when word of that got out uh, largely through social media um, uh, and it was also during the course of a time when goldman sachs was uh, looking to help uh, do a rescue um uh depositors uh fled and they moved a lot of their money into bigger banks and uh you know leaving uh, svb uh, in a very precarious uh, position right uh, and, 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 let's,
0: and, and before you go forward let, let's let so just to clarify here um it, it's not a 2008 situation very different no it's not uh, a lot of people
1: exactly a lot of people it, are emphasizing that this is not a, a housing collapse right
0: situation. Which is why I wanted to start off that way so we can make sure we tackle that particular uh, refrain that I've seen online. Um, And also um, just the way the inner workings of of banking, a a depositor puts their money into a a banking account and then that bank then uh, invests in different securities. Um, And so this is a mismanagement situation, not a scam is what I've also seen online. Um, Should bank customers in South Florida in particular worry about their own deposits? Any reports of people making a run on it on their banks
1: locally well people have uh been on the phone with their bankers there's no question about that i've spoken with uh a handful of uh, bankers uh, starting this past monday and uh, one in particular up here in fort lauderdale uh started on the phone at 4 a.m in the morning uh, you know, just to uh, essentially calm the nerves of clients. And the answer is no. I, I, just about everyone who has uh, been out there uh, discussing uh, the state of banking in Florida is uh, that deposits are safe. There are no institutions uh, that are in dire straits. Mm-hmm. Uh, Silicon Valley, of course, did open uh, a branch on Brickell Avenue in Miami back in 2021 uh, to serve technology clients. Uh, but uh, after the FDIC moved in, um, uh, Silicon Valley, which is now Known as Silicon Valley Bridge Bank hmm. because it's under the jurisdiction of the FDIC, uh, reopened for business on Monday.
0: Okay, and and I think this is a good time to segue uh, uh, with that discussion of tech companies here in Miami. Uh, Drew Limsky, um, how does this niche bank affect the tech industry as a whole, or other businesses here in South Florida area, specifically in Miami, where a lot of tech companies have made their home?
4: Let me just jump back to pick up on what David said, and then I'll go on to your sure, question. Sure, sure. Like imagine you're, you're an individual investor and you bought some CDs, $10,000 worth of CDs, and they're 18 month CDs. But then you decide you're not gonna hold them to maturity and you sell them after three months when you are supposed to hold on to them for 18 months. Your financial advisor, your family, people who you trust are wondering what is going on with your finances. On a macro level, that's what happened with SVB. It was a contagion, as David said, through social media. And when people start hearing this, there was a loss of confidence, and therefore a run on the bank. It was a very particular situation, made through bad investments—treasury notes and bonds. Now, when we move into Miami, which is increasingly a tech epicenter, um, SVB didn't have a big presence here. However, and again, it won't probably won't be affected as much as other areas of the country. We just did an interview with uh, Mason Williams, uh, C- Chief Investment Officer of Coral Gables Trust. There will, however, be a chilling effect. There probably already was a chilling effect after what happened to FTX. There was going to be a big sign on a huge tower in downtown Miami broadcasting FTX's success and how it was representative of this new tech center. Well, now that's gone. It's called Miami Data Arena. Um, I think it, it will be a tougher environment for startups because banks will be less likely, less um, generous in terms of extending credit. To some of these startups that we've heard so much about and the fact that a lot of these startups were bringing in a different class of educated um expertise to the area and high-paying jobs we're gonna i mean it's all a matter of degree we're gonna see how long this chilling effect will last and how deep it is yeah, it's we, a little bit too, too early to say but it is already having an impact right we, in, we, in we, a negative we, sense
0: we talk about that fear spreading quite rapidly um uh, and, and we're now seeing bigger institutions um, fill in the bulk of the weight of the fear um, that's in the air. Um, and there's a huge microscope on everyone's uh, balance sheet. Uh, what issues are Credit Suisse dealing with, which is a larger bank institution that it, that is a, a Swiss bank that isn't located here in the U.S.? Uh, and how does that particular situation differ from the bank failures in the U.S.?
4: It's a, it's a huge bank. I'll let, I'll let David, you want to? Well, I was going to say that
1: it's a very murky situation across the pond because, uh, I mean, the Swiss, uh, Credit Suisse, essentially, you know, it's one of the biggest banks, if not the biggest bank in, in Europe you know, with the worldwide reach, and um, they issued a, a financial report that said that they had uh, a material weakness in their in their financial reporting, uh, which is enough to send, uh, you know, ripples uh, all over the continent, and, and it did. Uh, to the extent that there is uh, a run uh, on credit Suisse as well so the Swiss National Bank uh, served up a credit facility or they're offered to, uh, made about 53 billion dollars uh, for credit Suisse to, mm. uh, to borrow and and, uh, and
0: and do we know how secure the investments are of banks who are lending to tech businesses here how secure
1: uh, in, in
0: terms of um, in terms of lending are, are banks here, in in, in good shape essentially
1: yes they are in good shape i i can i've been told that there aren't that many banks in 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 the state of florida that have been underwriting uh loans to technology companies i mean it's these technology companies have principally been funded by you know private equity companies that private investors who have come in from uh, other places and uh, uh, so you're you're not going to see your local community bank uh, uh, floating large loans to technology startups. That's, that, that's not the way it's worked uh, during this tech boom in the Miami area.
0: Um, is this a house of cards situation? Do you expect more uh, probing of certain balance sheets from, from different mid-sized banks and, and, and larger banks?
4: Let me grab this one. When we talk about what happened with First Republic, it is or was the 18th largest bank in the country. So it was deemed too big to fail. When the government stepped in and brokered a deal, so they would have an infusion of fifty billion dollars from eleven different banks, the top banks that each put in five billion dollars include Bank of America, J.P. Morgan, Citigroup, and and Wells Fargo. So the Fed did everything. the The government and the Fed are doing everything they can to stop to arrest this contagion. Um, with SVB, it happened over the weekend, um, uh, because the Asian markets were going to open on a Monday that closure was affected over the weekend. So I think the government is doing everything that they can possibly do. There are bank failures that occur every year that we never hear about it, we should know.
0: Yeah, and and that's a great clarification uh, uh, to mention to our listeners. Uh, David Lyons is the business reporter for the South Florida Sun Sentinel, and Drew Limsky is the editor in chief for South Florida Business and Wealth. Thank you both for sharing your expertise, really appreciate it. Okay, thanks for having us.
4: Thank you for inviting me.
0: Absolutely finally on the roundup Old miami and wlrn are partnering to transform a downtown miami billboard directly across the street from the heat arena arena into a canvas for poetry the rules for zip ode are simple use your five digit zip code to write a five line poem Each digit of your zip code determines how many words per line. Like this, my zip code is 33463, and I wrote a poem. It goes, I love you under the condition that you love yourself unconditionally. Share the sun within you. Brighten our days. Submit yours by March 22nd at WLRN.org slash zipodes. The winner's poem will be displayed on National Poetry Month. And that will do it for the South Florida Roundup. It's produced by Natu Twe with help from Helen Acevedo and Polly Landis. Our engagement editor is Katie Cohen. Katie Munoz is our director of original live programming. Our director of enterprise journalism is Jessica Bakeman. Mateus Sanchez is digital editor. Sergio Bustos is WLRN's Vice President of News. The vice president of radio and shows technical supervisor is Peter J. Meritz. Richard Ives answers the phones. And I'm Wilkin Brutus. Thanks for calling and listening. And remember, stay hydrated.